Welcome to another GodPod recording. Slightly unusual one because we have, as well as on the normal three suspects, Graham and Mike and me, Jane. So far as they could be called normal. Indeed. Um, we also are very lucky to have with us Professor Alistair McGrath, who's going to be fielding some of the questions, and also some students who are going to be starting studying at the St Paul's Theological Centre in September, who we also hope will, will join in. In today's GodPod, we are going to be looking at some very big questions indeed. We're looking at... Um, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? How do we handle those really difficult passages uh, in the Old Testament about God? We'll be looking at the question of science and faith and uh, whether science and faith are inevitably opposed to each other or whether they um, coincide in some way. And we'll also be learning something about Mike Lloyd's taste in clothes. It's um, a seasonal jacket. It's, it's the thing you would wear with a boater while punting down yeah. the ISIS or something like that. Not that we are on a boat. In a, on a boat no, but perhaps we should do that in the future. We should have it's a sort of purple and blue and yellow yeah. kind of jacket for those of you who can't see, Mike. It's probably just as well Gold, you can't I see it, actually. Rather than yeah, yellow. I beg your pardon. Black and white. <laughs> <laughs> just as well, I think. Okay. So welcome and enjoy the, the multi-voices you'll hear today. And I think Mike's got our first question. But there we do have a question uh, that um, Jan and Nigel sent in, and it's an interesting question. It said, uh, they've been wrestling on and off, mostly off, um, with the Old Testament, as it sits very uncomfortably, or seems to sit very uncomfortably, with the love and grace of God in the New Testament. And they were talking about how in their Alpha group last term, they had a, a chap there who was struggling with whether Christianity was true or not, kind of hovering on the edge of faith, and asked some quite hard questions about the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and they had real problems answering his questions. Um, Basically, the whole business of uh, God seeming to be enthusiastic about the slaughter of innocent people and the invasion of Canaan, what seems to me is, you know, seems to be something like ethnic cleansing, really. Now, that doesn't look like the God uh, that we meet in Jesus. Um, and that's what they're wrestling with, and they wanted some help with that kind of issue. And as we have you here, Alistair, <laughs> it seemed good to pass the buck to you. Do you have any initial kind of thoughts, reflections, or, or how to deal with that kind of... Well, I'll glad to say something, Mike, and then you can say something better. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think the questioner has made a very interesting point. I mean, he's used the phrase, the Old Testament. And immediately use that phrase, the Old Testament, you realize that actually you're, you're reading this from a Christian perspective. You are not taking a neutral perspective, you're not even taking a Jewish perspective. You're saying we are reading this as Christians. And of course that means that you are reading this from a, a particular perspective or you're using a sort of lens to see the Old Testament in a certain way. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's saying something extremely important. It's saying that while there are many ways of misreading the law and misreading the prophets, actually in Jesus himself, we see them as they are meant to be read. In other words, they, he fulfills what they are really all about. So I think that's a, an extremely important point to make as we begin to talk about this, that in one sense, we can look at the Old Testament and say, isn't it violent? Then you look at Jesus and see someone who was not violent but had violence done to him. Mm. And you begin to realize that maybe we need to rethink how we interpret the Old Testament. And so for me, one of the key things here is saying Jesus is the key to reading the Old Testament rightly. And above all, to seeing the God of the Old Testament as that God really is. I think that's a very important thing to get into our conversation right from the beginning. I think that's right. I mean, one of the... Somebody said to me once that the uh, slogan of the of postmodernism, the postmodern movement, is uh, that 
every ideology reeks of the death camps. In other words, if you believe anything too strongly, uh, you'll end up trying to impose it on others. But the key thing about the cross is that Jesus didn't impose his agenda on others. He allowed, if anything, them to impose theirs on him. And so a, a worldview that has the cross at the heart of it is not going to be one that imposes itself on others. But that just raises the question again, doesn't it? How, what do we do with uh, the Old Testament where, if you read it flat, if you read it straight, uh, God seems to be calling Israel to impose um, their will on uh, the peoples of, of Canaan as they enter the land. I mean, so what's going on there? I think one of the really helpful things you said there, Alistair, is that, is that we see things through a lens. And as Christians, it sounds as though we believe that we haven't done violence in the name of our God. Whereas clearly Christian history suggests that people could look at Christians and say that our God has also asked us, or we have said that our God has asked us to do violent things. Crusades would be an obvious mm -hmm. example. Um, is, is that... Are we actually saying that um, just as Christians can be mistaken in what we believe God has asked us to do, that there are mistake there that that's what's happening in the Old Testament? There are misunderstandings of God's will for the people. Well, I think as we read the Old Testament, we see uncomfortable resemblances between the history of Israel and the history of the church. Absolutely. Above all, let, let's impose our will on people. And I think it really brings home to me a, a very, very uncomfortable fact, which is that at the heart of our faith is someone who, in effect, took things upon him, who took other people's sins, other people's violence upon him, and did not do this himself. Mm -hmm. And yet, what does the church then do? I mean, it actually starts behaving like Israel all over again. It's the of Israel in the worst sense of the word. And what I find enormously important about reading the New Testament is that it certainly helps me make sense of the Old Testament, but the, the lens through which I read the Old Testament is also the lens through which I read the history of the church. And I see there a fallen, fallible institution which actually needs reconversion with every generation. Mm. Uh, it just really brings home to me how very often uh, we, we, we somehow make a disjunction between the person of Jesus and what he actually said and think that in some way we, we can get away with ignoring the kind of person he was. And I find that very, very challenging because I see these tendencies in myself. And then I read the gospel and think I've got to do something about this. So mm. it, I find it very, very uncomfortable at the same time, very important for you know, personal growth. I think um, maybe at the heart of a lot of those really difficult texts of the Old Testament, the bits where it sounds like God is saying, you know, wipe out the Amalekites and the Canaanites and all the other rites that are there. Um, Aldites. Marmites. Marmites. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, I suppose that, that, I mean, there's a lot There's a lot in that that's really tr quite troubling and difficult for us and, and there are different ways, of, I guess, of, of, of handling that and we might explore those in a minute. But I suppose at the heart of it, there is a there is a sort of a central idea, I think, of this, of, of this God being a jealous God. And that's the kind of language that's used. Now, I suppose we, we often think of that language, language of jealousy as a, essentially a bad thing. You know, jealousy is, a, is not something we, we, we would praise a great deal. But I guess if we, if we ask why is it that the, that the Old Testament talks about God as being a, a jealous God, I, mean, I think at the heart of that there's a sense that God is jealous for his people, that they might set their hearts upon him above everything else. Um, and that's not just, it's not for his sake, it's primarily for our sake or for his people's sake. It's not that, you know, he's some megalomaniac God who wants people to bow cravenly before him and offer him worship just because he can't do without it. Because um, that's not the God of, God of the Bible at all. But he, he's the God who knows that we are made to relate to him and to have him at the center of our, 
hearts and our minds and our our lives. And unless we have that at the center of our of our hearts and our lives, we will never be complete as people. And that's why he's jealous that we've that it, well that Israel focuses its attention on 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 Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and why he's not prepared to 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 put up with them wandering off after this god or that god and, and anything that is less than than the best because because the other gods are far more um, dangerous and violent gods to bow down before than the true god. Mm. So I mean that doesn't answer all the questions, but I think it does place something at the heart of it as to why. The God of the Old Testament is so insistent that Israel learns to place Yahweh, its own God, at the very heart of their, their, their life rather than any other God. And I agree with that, and I think it's very very helpful. At one level, it sharpens the question, doesn't it? I can say a but coming along. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, because uh, if the reason that it's not good for them to worship the other gods is because they were nasty and violent, and if the God of the Old Testament seems to have those traits in himself, then we've still got the problem. Uh, I suppose, okay, Jesus is the fulfillment of of the Old Testament uh, and the lens through which to view the Old Testament. Does that mean that in some way the revelation of God in, in Jesus relativizes the Old Testament? I think the language that I'd want to use is not so much relativizes as fulfills. And the word fulfills there is, has, I think, a double meaning. Not one simply bringing it to its proper culmination, but also providing us with the, the means of seeing it in its proper light. In other words, we fulfill our capacity to see this as it actually is. And I think this imagery which you find in Paul, but of course is developed by writers like Augustine, of removing a veil is actually extremely helpful. That, that truth lies veiled, it gets tied up with um, all kinds of cultic regulations and so on. But in some way, Jesus removes the veil, if you like, both by what he teaches, but also by what he does and by what is done to him. Which means we can actually see this in a certain way and say, aha, we thought this was about this, but really it's about that. Uh, it's, it's like a, a light flashing on or a, a, a curtain being drawn. You suddenly see things as it really is. So relativizes, I, I think, not quite. It's much more this is how it was meant to be seen and how we now realize it should be seen. But we can realize how it was read, for example, in a very nationalist way back in the history of Israel. But we now realize that, that now we see it in this way. And this is the way that Christians are meant to read it. So for me, it's, it's much more about the idea of fulfillment, being enabled to see it in this way and saying, that's right, that makes sense. And if this is right, then this follows as well. And even within the Old Testament itself, you see um, critiques of prevailing ideas about God. The prophets are often saying, hang on, hang on, you're, you're turning God into your tool rather than remembering that you're Absolutely. God's. Absolutely. That's so important. And again, a point we need to remember here is that um, Jesus, in many ways, is offering a prophetic critique of Judaism. And sometimes people say the, the New Testament is anti-Semitic, but actually, really, it is continuing this prophetic tradition, which is an internal critique. It is about Jews critiquing Judaism, saying this isn't the way God meant it to be. Mm. And certainly when I read the, the Gospels in particular, I see Jesus trying to redirect, to transform, to purify the tradition. And that is all about affirming what is good, but also redirecting what it's necessary and part of that process of redirection is saying you thought it meant that well it means this 
And that means changing things quite radically. And we can see that in the parables, where very often the parables are saying, look, you used to think it was this, but actually, really, it's this. And, and it's this process of, of rethinking, radical rethinking, you know, which is so significant. You know, the, the old wineskins just can't hold this. And that seems to me to be a very important key to what's going on here. Just one, one more thing to add on it. I mean, I, and I, obviously, there are the, the really troubling passages in the Old Testament, but I think it's, it's a mistake just to think of the Old Testament God as being fundamentally different from the New Testament God. And that there's because you can get the impression that the Old Testament's all full of wrath and anger, and God is sort of pretty nasty chap there. But in the New Testament, he turns out to be quite nice. Um, <laughs> but actually, the, there's vastly more in the New Te- in the Old Testament about God's faithfulness, his his, his covenant for his people, his Mercy. endless mm-hmm. patience with Israel. You, know, you have to read the Psalms, you read many of the prophets, you read all all of the so much of the New Testament, is, the Old Testament is this fundamentally about this God who is long-suffering and patient and kind and, and, and generous and, and good, a God of creation who actually pours out goodness upon upon his people. And I think it's it's within that context that we have to see the the, the difficult texts, not the other way around. Um, in the context of seeing that is the kind of God we're relating to, which I guess gets, comes back to the sort of the jealous God bit, I think, because actually the, the core of the character of the God of the Old Testament is this God of, of, of endless, long-suffering love, which is actually the same as the character of Jesus. And that's why it makes sense to talk about Jesus as being the embodiment of the God of the Old Testament, um, because he shows exactly the same qualities as this Old Testament God does. Although conversely, there are a few nasty moments in the New Testament as well. Mm, sure. It's yeah. not a complete exactly. uh, right. hermetically sealed yeah. unit in that way. Mm. But I'm going to do something which you know, theologians shouldn't do um, and hate having done to them, but ask a direct question here. Um, so, did God order the slaying of the Canaanites? Well, you, you can answer this in a number of ways. You can certainly say that um, uh, Israel heard God to say that. I mean, that, that's, that's a very significant way of looking at this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the key question you might want to ask really is, um, do God's purposes change over time? In other words, is there something which would have been okay then but was a one-off event which is no longer appropriate? Mm-hmm. And again, that, that's, that's a very hard question to answer. I mean, certainly what, the point I would like to make, which I think is an important point, is that one of the reasons that we look at that and say that that seems very, very difficult, is because we have this very, very strong sense of God revealed through Christ. Yes. And we just say, this can't be right, or there's, there's a big problem here. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we think it is a problem is because we have this full understanding of who God is, yes. what God is like. And that makes us reread this and say, that, no, there's something wrong there. We need to think about this very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. So certainly this is a challenge to us to rethink this and avoid any simplistic saying, this is about God authorizing violence, this is about God authorizing our people to go in and possess a land, as, for example, the Boers did in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to be very, very cautious about this. We have to say, maybe this is a once-for-all event, which will never happen again. But mm-hmm. certainly, it is a very difficult question to give a straight answer to, precisely because it is such a difficult question. Mm. And we can't be... Marcionites, people who, you know, Marcion was this figure who no, cut, bit, cut bits out of the old... The church has said one option is to say the Old Testament God is different, let's yes. forget about him. Mm-hmm. And they thought that one through, and rightly they've said, no, no, mm-hmm. this is part of our story, mm-hmm. and it needs to be told, but we read that part of the story in the light of this part of the story. Yes. It would be very interesting, wouldn't it, to have um, this discussion with some Jewish scholars and how that text is read in the light of the subsequent history of Israel, the exile 
and and the modern history of, well, of Judaism. Yes, yeah. it would be State of Israel today. Yeah. Maybe we should do that. In Maybe we should. Pod. Yeah. Do any of you? Would any of you like to come in? Oh, I was just wondering if we could throw into the pot um, the idea of God's holiness. That actually, that entry into um, the promised land. Um, and that sort of cleansing of the land and the slaying of these people groups was actually to do with God um, setting a standard of his holiness. Um, I just wonder whether or not um, it could maybe discuss that and, um, and see if it's relevant to, to this. Because um, I think God is, he was setting a model, wasn't he, about um, who he is and the standards that he requires and the type of worship he desires and trying to separate out his people um, so that they had a model of the holiness of God. Um, and I think it's easy to say, oh, God, you know, didn't want that or, it, you know, we decry it and, you know, we cast doubt on it as part of God's characteristic. But actually, it's to do with that whole notion of holiness. And one could add to that in a way and say... You know, it was quite possibly a fairly despicable culture <laughs> that was going on with with human sacrifice and all sorts of things. Can, is there any, or, or should we not be trying to justify this in any way? I suppose that, that, that's the question there, isn't it? And the, and the other part of it is that I mean, empires rise and fall, and they always have done, and they always will, and there have been a number of other despicable cultures that we are mm. quite glad have, have come to grief. Yes, and um, are, are very pleased that we, that they have, and you know we think of what arose in Germany in the 1930s, and we're all mm. heartily glad mm. that God brought about the destruction of even though it took that, violence to do it exactly of that mm. of that um, that regime. So I think you know I think Hadley's right. You know we, we shouldn't entirely be sort of too squeamish about the idea that God does bring down mm. certain cultures that are that are violent and oppressive and. and Dehumanising. I mean, that doesn't necessarily get, bring us back to the same point of saying, you know, God is certainly God is not saying now, you know, go out and kill these broken people or that people. That's the last thing you want to say. But we do have to look back at history and, and, and see the way in which things that God does bring about this kind of thing. There's a sense in which God can't win, isn't there? You know, <clears throat> if He doesn't do anything. Uh, about the world and the state of the things and the way things are going, people say, oh, why doesn't he do something? When he does do something, as in perhaps, for example, the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea to prevent the genocide of the Jewish people, people say, oh, that's a nice, very nice God. So he's on a losing wicket, really, isn't he? I think um, we're, we're starting to touch on um, the area of, of sin and God's um, dealing with, with human sin. And we don't just see the issues of sin being raised in the New Testament, but we see um, how people... People were completely disregarding God and his ways in the Old Testament, as we mentioned earlier about, about holiness. And some of these other nations, not saying that Israel was perfect by any means, uh, in fact, completely opposite, but um, many of these nations, for example, were sacrificing their children in the fire in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was, you know, terrible things going on. And there was an outcry from the people for, for God to do something about this terrible injustice. And you could perhaps argue that God's judgment against human sin was was going on but also within that judgment there was also a compassion because he was dealing with this sin and maybe that's I, I'm saying a lot of things all in one go here and probably not coming out very clearly but maybe that's when looking through the lens of Jesus really helps us because on the cross we see God's judgment and his compassion dealing with that sin completely that we get a glimpse of perhaps in the Old Testament. I think that's a very helpful thing to say. Yeah, in a sense, it, 
part of the reason that we're struggling to give a straight answer to the straight question I quite inappropriately asked as a theologian um, is precisely you because... Now, the, like. Sorry? I hope you learned your lesson now. <laughs> never ask a straight, never straight do question such a thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I repent in sackcloth and ashes, or at least in nice summer blazers and yes. white trousers. Um, but part of the reason is that it is a very nuanced thing, and actually part of the problem with... Um, either fundamentalism or liberalism is that it wants to give an unnuanced answer to what is a complicated, complex situation because human beings are complicated and complex. But I still want to stick with the thing that Graham's been saying all along about God, the jealous God, the faithful God, Mm. because I think that's the thing that that is one of the continuous threads, that God doesn't let go of his people. And we change and we um, understand God differently at different points in our lives and at different points in our life as a community. But God doesn't change. God is always still the God who calls us and draws us to himself. And we hope we will find out a lot more about him as time goes on. Why people's perceptions of God actually change over their lives? I don't mean that God changes at all. I mean is that... um when you are young, perhaps it is the theme of the love of God that appeals to you most. And as you grow old and certain other virtues begin to become important, perhaps the theme of God's faithfulness mm-hmm. begins to play an increasing role. When you become a parent, you know, there's certain nuances there you pick up. And what is, to me, amazing about the Christian revelation of God is that actually it has this capacity to enthrall and hold you through a wide variety of situations, not something that you sort of hits you when you're 17 and then sort of fades away as you move on. It's something that actually you appreciate more as you begin, as your life brings you into situations where various aspects of the gospel actually become embedded in your life and actually mean a lot more to you. And I think it's very nice in the Psalms to hear, to, to be given permission to say to God, whatever are you doing? Mm. And I don't understand this and it's making me very cross. <laughs> so there, 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 aren't, there are no things that you can't say to God, provided you, you're prepared to put up with God's answer. Or his question, yes. of course. Yes, indeed. <laughs> There's something about, I mean, I think that strikes me about the Old Testament picture of God is he's not bland, is he? No. He's, he's not boring. You know, this is it. Is a God of incredible sort of passion in all kinds of ways, you know, and, and the fact that he he is as full of mercy and faithfulness and, and goodness, but he also gets angry and he also gets cross with people, and he, you know, this is yeah, he's an interesting God rather than a rather dull one, which I'm sure that's what God would be like if I made him in my image. Or um, oh, I don't. I'm sure. I think you denigrate <laughs> your own creative powers, uh, Graham, but I know what you no, mean. You, you don't want a God made in my image. So <laughs> I can guarantee that. <laughs> The aspect of God's character that appeals to me as I get old is, is eternal rest. (laughs) 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 Alistair, since we do have you with us, and since um, we know that you're going to go on later this evening to to lecture on the the problem of Dawkins and his God, I wonder if you can tell us, give us a brief taste so that we can then uh, encourage people to... Mike, so we can then encourage people to, sorry, sorry, to go to the web and listen to the whole thing. That's right? what I meant. That yes, is exactly yeah. what you meant. <laughs> well, I think the, the main thing to say about Dawkins is I think he plays to a certain cultural mood. People want absolutely certain answers. Uh, and he's giving them a very simple, very certain answer that, 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 um, that, that people who believe in God are mad or fools or deluded and that science is saying something extremely simple, extremely elegant and absolutely right, which is you know, there's no God. It's all fabrication. And he then lays out a number of reasons for thinking this. And in the lecture, really what I say is, here are what these reasons are. And actually, they aren't really very good. 
Uh, in other words, it's not a question of you know, whether I believe in God or not. It's simply looking at the arguments and just saying, well, here's the first one. And actually, for example, the, the one he uses most extensively is simply that science disproves God. And again, you just have to really ask, I mean, is, is that... Is that sustainable when you know, I mean, many people listen to this podcast will say, actually, just a minute, I'm a scientist, I believe in God, or I've got loads of friends who are scientists, or in fact, you look at most uh, university Christian unions, half of them are scientists. So, I mean, where on earth is this coming from? And really, it is not, it's not so much something that's true, it's clearly not true, but it's something that people would like to think is true. Because atheism is going through a very difficult time at the moment. People are trying to find, you know, rational defenses of what they believe. And it's comforting to think that science says there is no God. But in reality, it's not like that. I think the other thing which has been picked up in the culture in a very, very big way is this idea you find in Dawkins that uh, belief in God is a virus of the mind. Mm. In other words, you know, there are these normal people and they happen to sit beside somebody who's got this God virus and somehow it jumps from them to you. And before you know what's happened, your brain's all <laughs> like squashed and messed up. That's yes, right. And, 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 you know, really your, your brain turns to mishmash and you start believing in God. And it's not that you've thought about this. It's just you've been keeping the bad company. And, and it's a remarkable <laughs> argument when you think about it. I mean, I mean, there's no evidence at all that ideas are spread in this way. And most interesting of all, of course, is that actually when you think about it, atheism is as much a faith as Christianity. Mm-hmm. Sure, I can't prove God exists, but actually my atheist friends can't prove he doesn't exist. So actually both of us are in a sort of almost position of faith where we have to say we believe this but can't prove it. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, Dawkins doesn't really think of the obvious question, which is might atheism also be a kind of virus of the mind. In fact, might not lots of things be, in which case, how on earth do you adjudicate between them? So the real difficulty, I think it became very, very clear for those of you who watched that uh, rather odd program about um, the root of all evil by Dawkins himself, is that actually the case he presents for atheism is really not very strong. And in fact, it's an embarrassment, if I have to say it, to many of my atheist friends. And I think one of the questions that that view of religions of virus raises is it, I mean, it plays quite strongly into the kind of Soviet business where people were put into psychiatric hospitals for believing this kind of thing. If you believe that it is a virus of the mind, then maybe people need curing of it uh, in that kind of forcible way. Um, so it's got unpleasant antecedents, hasn't it? As a view. It has very unpleasant antecedents. Uh, and Dawkins doesn't do enough history, I think, to realise this. I mean, you know, if, if you're a bad person or a mad person, will you lock you up either in a prison or in a psychiatric ward? And we've been there. Mm. And one of the curious things is you will read Dawkins' works and you have a hard job finding anything about Joseph Stalin or indeed the Soviet Union where actually atheism became institutionalised. I think one of the things I've often been puzzled, not simply by Dawkins but by others as well, is that they are very, very good at pointing out Christianity's many deficiencies in the past, and there are loads of them. Mm -hmm. But in the 20th century, we've seen what happens when atheism comes to power. And actually, it's not a very pleasant story. Uh, And actually, I think one of the things the 20th century has done is made it very, very difficult indeed to sustain the view that atheism leads to a bold, brave world, which is better. I mean, we've been there. It's not very nice. And therefore, I think atheism really has a much harder job to persuade us that it is such a robust and exciting thing in the light of its rather baleful legacy during the last century. Sorry. I had a question for you. Um, I guess that, I mean, Dawkins buys into the whole kind of warfare metaphor between science and faith, that these two are completely incompatible and they are kind of fundamentally opposed to each other. Um, 
I suppose there are Christian theologians who would say, well, yes, okay, we don't buy into the warfare metaphor, but if you like, they're two hermetically sealed areas, theology and science, that don't really overlap at all, um, and are just talking about two different things. And then, but I suppose there's another position that would say, actually, that the world of theology, of revelation, and the natural world that is explored through scientific means, actually, there's a sort of harmony, there's a kind of, um, there is an overlap. There. And so, so I just wonder how, how you saw that kind of issue. Well, I think that there is a certain degree of overlap, and at times there's harmony, at times there's tension. But certainly the view that science and religion are engaged in a permanent warfare which can only lead in science's victory is a very 19th century idea, reflecting the, the social realities of the 19th century. I was talking to Ron Numbers, who's professor of the history of science, University of um, Madison, Wisconsin, a few weeks back, and he was saying that there is one big myth which is demonstrably a myth that perpetuates many popular writings on this, and it is the idea that science and religion are permanently at war. It is not so. And really, there there have been times of great positive interaction, times of tension, but there's none of this permanent warfare stuff that you find in Dawkins. And again, I I just puzzle myself, you know, why on earth does he say this sort of stuff when anybody who knows their history will say that this this actually isn't so? So do you you then see there's a a kind of... um the kind of revelation of God in the natural world, in creation, and the revelation of God in Scripture and in Christ and so on. Do you think there is an essential harmony there? Or, um, you know, because I suppose there are some theologians like Sir Karl Barth or others who would say, well, actually, no, there's a fundamental distinction between those two things. We must keep the two entirely separate. Um, and how do you see that kind of issue? Well, I think I, I would take the view that if God created the world, then you know something of God's glory or God's wisdom is radiated through his creation. Even though you and I are sinful and fallen, hence don't see it quite right. I mean, I'm thinking of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, maybe you need to see the heavens in a certain way to be able to see that glory, but certainly it is there. And certainly one of the things I notice in the New Testament, especially in Acts 17, where Paul is doing this very interesting apologetic with the Athenians, is almost like an appeal to nature, an appeal to the idea of a creator God, actually carries credibility in a culture which knows nothing about scripture. In other words, um, you can begin to connect up with a culture who knows nothing about the idea of God and say, look, the the world itself um, actually is a a starting point for a very significant conversation about where it came from, where it's going, and then allows you to bring in this idea of a creator God. So I think in our postmodern, rather biblically illiterate era, this is a very important starting point, but clearly not a stopping point for some very interesting apologetic discussions. You said at the beginning, Alistair, that um, that atheism is having a tough time nowadays. Why is that, do you think? I've noticed a sort of generation gap opening up. I have many friends who are atheists, and their children are either religious believers or, in inverted commas, spiritual. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you know, mum and dad are atheists, and we understand that. But that, that's <laughs> the way people were back in those days. Nowadays, <laughs> you know, well, you can't be sure about this sort of stuff, and we want to keep this debate open. And you find them um, being very interested. They'll say we're in touch with our spiritual sides and they're not Christians they might become such but they aren't at the moment but what they are saying is that um, the atheist vision isn't good enough yeah, and that's, that, that's right it doesn't deliver we want, we want to try something else yes. now of course that's good news and bad news for the church it's good news because there's some very important openings there but there are the sort of openings that the church isn't really taking enough advantage of at the moment so we have to work on this one I think 
And how do we take advantage of it? Well, I think if people are interested in spirituality, we're able to really begin to say, look, what you are saying is there's more to life than what we see. And therefore, the big question is, is there any way we can actually connect up with this? Are we looking for something or has something come to find us? A bit like C.S. Lewis in Surprised by Joy, mm. when the joy that Lewis thought he had to look for actually was coming to look for him. So I think there's some very important openings there. But the real difficulty is that a lot of the church is kind of locked into a more modernist way of thinking. I think we've got to try and just move beyond that, particularly as these younger people actually do think in a rather different way. We've got quite a lot of experts on young people sitting around the Is what Alistair's saying... Does, would you agree that it makes sense of the kind of experience you've had in youth work? And Definitely say that's that's the case. I think um, young people are are, are um, sceptical and um, and have big questions about science and the fact that there is no God and that all the answers are, are being answered because they, they know they aren't being answered. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they think, well, why do I feel certain things? Why do I sense that God is there, even if they're not reading the Bible and they can't understand who God is as a personal God? And they are searching and they are questioning. And I see that all the time in youth groups that I run. So mm-hmm. definitely there is an openness to God. Understanding who that God is as a personal loving God is, uh, takes a bit of work. Which is what you're doing. Hopefully, Very yes. Good. So what? So part of what we are doing about this problem the church has is helping to train more people like right. Stuart and yeah. Andy and yeah. Hedley and people all around the room. So. I think there's something about England and something about London and the way culture is mixed here as well. And I think part of the... I totally agree with Alistair that this there is something about this generation of young people. But I think when people of various different faiths come together and their answer is there must be a God. It's different from a culture where loads of ideas come together and they agree God must be impossible. And I think in other parts of the world, I come from Canada, and I think a lot of Canadian culture, for instance, is saying, is still hung up in that atheistic generation. Mm. And I think there's something about Britain now. Uh, maybe it's something to watch with how these generations shift around the world. So if it is true that you know atheism doesn't produce a wonderful world as Stalin and Co. show us, but also the case that you know religion is accountable for a whole lot of nasty stuff, the dispassionate observer might say, well, nothing seems to work. We're just kind of locked in uh, a cycle of violence from which nothing can get us out. Well, the dispassionate observer might say that, but I think uh, another way of interpreting it is to say, look, what we seem to have here is a situation where whatever we believe, it seems to elicit a human response that actually is flawed. In other words, that uh, a worldview can excite people to do great things, but can also incite them to do some very, very bad things as well. And that might actually be saying something very, very worrying about human nature. And that might even be true. And that's one of the reasons why I think Christianity is enormously important. I keep quoting this extract from C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And the point he's trying to make is it gives you a framework for making sense of things. If we are made in God's image, that raises our aspirations, but if we are fallen, that drags us down. And you can see exactly that pattern throughout human history, people being excited by great things and pulled down by dreadful things. And that really actually is is, is part of the problem we're looking at here. Atheism thought we are the answer. 
Now we see, no, 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 you're actually illustrating the problem. And so the real issue now is, if this is true about human nature, is there anything that can deliver us from this body of sin? And I think there's an answer to that. You want to hear um, Alistair's lecture tonight, which is entitled, Has Science Killed God? Richard Dawkins and the Meaning of Life. You can find, you can download the lecture from um, from our website, which is um, our support theological centre website, which is hdb.org.uk forward slash sptc. So um, that's hdb.org.uk forward slash sptc. So if you go to that, you should be able to uh, download Alistair's lecture. You might even be able to watch it on video, I think, there as well. So, I think it's going to be downloadable in both forms. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. That's right. So you can see him in glorious Technicolor. So Although, hi to all of you. Look forward to seeing you later. <laughs> Although, or BBC. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you might even catch a glimpse of Mike's jacket on that um, you might. video. If you're really and then you can careful. see how much it was being maligned by my fellow God Podders. <laughs> and although we can't promise to have Alistair answer all your questions in future, do feel free to email us more questions for us. Um, mere mortals. Mere mortals to, right. to discuss at, 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 at hdb.org.uk. May we say, Alistair, thank you so much for coming to join us. And thank all of the students. Um, we hope you'll next year be able to come and join us again for another GodPod recording. And thanks to Graham and to Mike. It's been a pleasure. Indeed. It's all it is. It is.